We're looking at Hebrews chapter 12 again today, so if you'll turn there, I'm going to read for us verses 18 through 24. You can follow along in your Bibles, they're on the screen. This is verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that's burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they couldn't bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Most commentators... I believe that by the time our author gets to this passage, he has moved from the topic of faith onto other things. The very excellent scholar, Paul Ellingsworth, even says that these verses are not linked to the previous ones, but to the general situation of the readers. And yet, I'm convinced that our author has not moved on to other things. The issue here is still faith. He knew that Christians need faith to see what is unseen and to believe in what they cannot touch. Remember what Jesus told Doubting Thomas? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And Peter makes much the same point. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Faith never ceases to be a necessity in your life, no matter how long you've been following Jesus. Now let's set this in relation to what we saw last week. Our author has just described Esau as a man who believed only in what he could see and smell and taste. A man whose actions were informed by his immediate situation. Esau's focus on the immediate made faith an impossibility to him. And our author knows that if we pursue the same course, we're going to arrive at the same place. Esau was, verse 17, rejected. That word has the idea of something that's been tested but has failed. It's a quality control word. It's the word that would be used to describe a part in a machine shop that doesn't meet standard and so is rejected. Esau needed to believe in the reality, the value and the reward of his birthright, but he didn't. Now, he may have talked like he did, but his belief in such things had no effect on his actions. And I'm afraid that many people who say they believe in Jesus are just modern-day Esau's. Their brand of faith makes no difference in their lives. Back in 1958, Pan Am launched its first commercial uh, jet service with a fleet of Boeing 707s. A month later, 
two passengers flying on an older prop-driven DC-6 struck up a conversation, and when one learned that the other was a Boeing engineer, he had all kinds of questions for him. The engineer was happy to answer those questions. He spoke at length about Boeing's experience with engines, going back to the B-17 all the way to the B-52. He talked about extensive testing that had been done on the 707s before they were brought into service. He talked about airspeed and about lots of other advantages of the new jets. That's when his fellow passenger asked if he had flown on one yet. The engineer paused and replied, I think I'll wait until it's been in service for a while. (laughs) Enthusiastic talk is not the same thing as faith. Knowing facts is not the same thing as faith. Unless we're willing to alter our life trajectory on the basis of the beliefs we can't claim, that belief is not faith in the full biblical sense. Our author sees a similarity between our situation and Esau's. Esau couldn't see or touch or smell the birthright, but he could see and touch and smell his brother's stew. We can't see or smell or touch spirit or grace or judgment. But we can see and smell and touch plenty of other things. The first readers of this letter had been part of a religious community with lots of rules, lots of rituals, things that they could see and touch and smell. But they were being drawn back to that way of life the way Esau was drawn to the stew. It was immediate, it was tangible. They knew where they stood with it. But concentrating on the immediate, the visible, the tangible, can distract from the meaningful. You've heard of distracted driving? There's also such a thing as distracted living and distracted worship. It happens whenever we become overly occupied with the demands of the immediate. We live in a world that presents us with more decisions than our parents ever dreamed of. And we are fast approaching decision overload. In 2010, the average American supermarket carried 48,750 items. That's five times the number that were available when I was in college. Superstores like Walmart carry twice that many items. Uh, On Netflix, you can get up to 100,000 DVDs. Amazon offers 24 million books. In his book, The Paradox of Choice, researcher Barry Schwartz claims that we've reached the point where choice no longer liberates, but debilitates. It might even be said to tyrannize. That's the world we live in. It screams, look at me, look at me, look at me. It thrusts itself into our vision, demands our attention. We live under the tyranny of the immediate. In a few moments, we'll take the Lord's Supper. For centuries, the church has argued over how Jesus is present in Holy Communion. And those arguments have sometimes divided us from each other. Those arguments have used terms like transubstantiation, consubstantiation, and real presence to try to describe how Jesus is actually present in the Lord's Supper. But I think the pressing question is whether we'll be actually present at the Lord's Supper. Or if we'll just absentmindedly go through the motions. When we're taken up with the immediate, we often miss the permanent. 
When we're occupied with what's seen, we forget what's unseen. But faith deals with the unseen. We fix our eyes, this is St. Paul, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so we walk by faith, not by sight. Remember what Hebrews 11.1 taught us? When it comes to faith, or when it comes to things unseen, faith is the proof. Faith deals with the unseen. We deal, if we're Christians, with the unseen. Or we fail to deal with it, if we follow Esau's example. If you're not dealing with the unseen, you are living on the periphery of your life. Our author says, verse 18, for... If you have an NIV, you'll notice that it leaves that conjunction for untranslated. But it's important because it relates what the author is about to say back to what he's just said about Esau, who had been caught between the seen and the unseen. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blaster, to such a voice speaking words. To us... This verse may seem like a weird intrusion. What's all this stuff about burning mountains and trumpet blasts? But the first readers of this letter would have understood it just like that. The author is describing Israel's experience at Mount Sinai. When Moses received the law and the people saw astonishing things and heard startling sounds, almost any first century Jew would have understood this reference. The experience at Sinai was Israel's defining moment. Our author uses that experience to contrast his readers' present experience to their ancestors' past experience. He tells them that unlike their ancestors, they have not come to something tangible when they come to God. They don't come to something they can see and feel and hear. But isn't that what we want? Don't we want an experience of God that we can see and hear and feel? Don't we want proof for ourselves and our friends that this whole thing is real? I think we do. We want something we can touch because we think then we can control it. We want something we can see so that if need be, we can close our eyes to it. It is, I think, a working principle of the spiritual life that the more we are occupied and overwhelmed might be the better word, the more we're overwhelmed with the demands of the immediate, the more we want our religion to be tangible, visible, and controllable. But faith, as Hannah Woodall Smith put it a long time ago, is nothing at all tangible. It's simply believing God. And like sight, it's nothing apart from its object. You might as well shut your eyes and look inside to see whether you have sight is to look inside to discover whether you have faith. But we want something we can touch and see and hear and smell, or so we think. But our author points out that when the Israelites got what we want, they didn't like it. Look at verse 19. They heard such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. Some people think it would be great to have an experience like the one the Israelites had at Sinai. But that's only because they haven't had one and don't realize what it entails. But they will have a similar experience. All of us will, you and I too. 
It's called the day of judgment. Here's what we need to understand. The entire human race, you, me, all of us, have been infected by a disease, the Bible calls it sin, that makes us deathly allergic to God. Some people picture the day of judgment as a meeting between poor little humans and the angry God bent on destroying them. That's just not the way it is. God doesn't want to destroy or unmake us, but sin has so damaged us that we are incapable of surviving his overwhelming presence. That's the reason Jesus came. Humans cannot survive God's presence, but then we can't live without him either. It's like we're stuck on a desert island where only one food grows, and we're allergic to it. Without God, we can't live, but with God, we can't survive. We need him, but we can't take him. So how did God handle this dilemma? How could he get close enough to help us without destroying us? He became small. He emptied himself, is the Bible's way of putting it, and became human. He took a form we could endure. Even then, many people couldn't stand to be near him. Their God allergy flared up every time he was around. But through Jesus, humans could encounter the living God without being reduced to ashes. But getting close wasn't God's ultimate goal in the incarnation. The goal was to impart to each of us a little of God's own kind of life. It acts like an immunization of sorts, only it works in a different way than our allergy treatments. When someone receives a treatment, the doctor or nurse injects into him a little of the allergen that causes him trouble. After repeated injections sometimes over years, his body becomes immune to the allergen. It no longer pays attention to its presence. But the life Jesus imparts to people doesn't inoculate them against God or make them insensitive to him. It makes them like God to the degree that life works through them, body, soul, and spirit, to that degree they can, to the degree, in the words of the apostle, they put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, they can be present with God. The goal of Jesus' incarnation as human, of his death and resurrection, was not to make us immune to God, but accessible to him. Or to make us, and these are the apostles' words again, like God in true righteousness and holiness. Christ came to earth in spite of knowing what would befall him to complete an extraordinarily ambitious goal. To bring you to God, those are Peter's words, without destroying you in the process. When some people picture the day of judgment, they imagine people standing before God arguing their case. I don't think it'll be like that. If you've received the life of God by faith, and if that life has worked itself through your whole being, the process is known as sanctification in the Bible. The near presence of God will not destroy you, but will activate you in ways that we cannot foresee, but that will be awesome. The Bible describes it as being glorified. If you received the life Jesus imparts at some point in your past, you've trusted in him, 
invited him into your life, but his life has not worked through you to any significant degree, you will be saved like one escaping through the flames. Whatever has not been taken up into the life of God will be destroyed, will be burned up, but what remains will be glorified and glorious, beautiful and full of joy. And then there's the person who stands before God who has never received from Jesus the God life, what the Bible calls eternal life. Eternal life is his life. He or she will simply be undone. Unable to survive in heaven, he or she will be assigned to the only place left, hell. People call this cruel, but it's a mercy For the person who lacks the eternal kind of life, the unsaved soul, the person who doesn't have eternal life and has never had eternal life, there is a place worse than hell. Heaven. They would rather be cast into the isolation of the outer darkness than to be brought into the presence of the God whom they can never experience as loving Father but only as consuming fire. So the question for us is, have we received the life that Jesus came to earth and died in order to give us? If we have not, we have nothing to look forward to but, in the alarming words of Hebrews, a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That's tough stuff. Sooner or later, everyone meets God. And that meeting will either glorify them in ways so beautiful and awe-inspiring that we cannot yet conceive of it, or that meeting will unmake them. And it all depends on whether they have received the eternal kind of life through faith in Jesus. If that life is reached into all their being, they will be great in the kingdom of heaven. If that life is in them but has remained dormant, they will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Whichever the case may be, the only things done that will outlast this life will be done by God's grace through faith, not by our unaided efforts through sight. The Israelites saw, and it terrified them. Even so great a man as Moses said, this is verse 21, I'm trembling with fear. Don't complain that you haven't had the tangible, visible experiences they did, they would gladly trade with you. We've come to something real and better, but intangible. And so faith is still required. We've come, look at verse 22, to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteousness, and made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The central theme of the book of Hebrews, I wonder if you remember it or not, is Jesus is better. Here we have that idea yet once again. Moses, great man that he was, led people to Mount Sinai, Jesus, greater still, has led and is leading people to God. 
but we cannot see or touch or handle these things. Not yet, at any rate. In that sense, they're like Esau's birthright. Real, valuable, fabulously important, but intangible. We can only connect to these things as we trust in God. There is a nexus between our experience of the tangible world and the intangible one that's described in these verses. There is a connecting point between the world of spirit and the world of flesh. Our Catholic friends would say that that nexus is in the Lord's table. And they would not be wrong. Quakers might see that nexus in the inner light. Let no one gainsay it. We evangelicals find that nexus between worlds and the Holy Scriptures. And it can't be denied. That nexus can be in any and all of these places as well as with the poor. And in meditation or in prayer. There are doors everywhere, but they all open with the same key. Faith in Jesus Christ. Without faith, the Lord's Supper leads nowhere. The inner light is a mirage. The scriptures are a dead end. Faith is the key. Now, I said that we've come to a reality that we can't see or touch yet. But how can it be real if we can't see it or hear it or touch it? Doesn't that amount to saying that it's unreal? No. Imagine that we have a woman here this morning who has recently discovered that she's pregnant. She's with child. That mom has brought her child with her into the midst of our gathering to friends, worshipers, perhaps to angels and spiritual powers and to the presence of Almighty God. That child is just as much here as you or I. But she can't see or hear or touch our reality directly. But it won't be long before she can. Just a few months. She just needs to be born first. To be, as we say of babies, delivered. And that's the way it is with us. We need to be delivered before we can fully experience the realities of which verses 22 through 24 speak, even though we're already surrounded by them. We have assumed that our problem with these things is that they're invisible. But the reality is more like we're invisible. We are hidden in earth's womb until our delivery comes. Hebrews has already spoken about that. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he'll appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation. In Greek, that word could be translated, interestingly enough, delivery, to those who are waiting for him. Until then, we can touch the joyful assembly of heaven in faith-filled worship, And God can hear our prayers even though we're concealed in the womb of earth. It's enough for now. In fact, it's more than enough. But it's not all. Not by a long shot.
In closing, let me direct your attention to verse 23. Through faith in Jesus, we have come to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. There's a whole lot worth your meditation in verses 22 through 24. Let me just mention this one. To the spirits of righteous men made perfect. We could translate that to the just spirits having been made perfect or having been completed. Remember the bumper sticker that you used to see around years ago that says Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven? You know, I'm not sure quite why people bother saying that. It's not like anyone is confused on the point. I really doubt that someone is saying about you, I'm pretty sure he's perfect. You don't have to advertise that you're not. We've already figured it out. But here's what I want you to hear. You are pre-perfect if you've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. To be justified by faith is to be pre-perfect. God had a perfect person in mind when he created you. And being justified by faith is the sign that he hasn't given up on making that person. Everyone in heaven will be perfect. Some will be perfect like an eighth carat diamond without flaw and with beautiful clarity and color. Others will be perfect like a half-carat diamond or a one-carat diamond or a 20-carat diamond, shining like the sun. All will be as full of the glory of God and the joy of the righteous as they can possibly be. But some will possess a greater capacity to be filled. The increase in capacity for joy and glory happens right now. Here on earth, as God acquires access into our entire being, the glorified will all truly say, I'm as happy as I can be. But one will hold more happiness than another, like an ocean holds more water than a lake. We have a role in deciding what we shall be. Ocean, lake, pond, puddle, But the power that shapes us is God's alone. And the conduit through which that power flows is faith. And it expresses itself in obedience. Now let's pray. God, would you take from this what you choose? What you know we need and speak it again into our hearts today and as this week goes on. Shape us by your word and to the people you had in mind when you made us. For Jesus' sake, amen. We're going to stand together and sing. As we're doing so, would those who are helping us with the communion this morning just come up and stand here in the front row with us. I thank Jeannie, you're one song ahead of us. That's the very last song. So if you move back one, I think you'll find it. Now you know what's coming. <laughs> Here, oh my Lord, I see.
thee face to face. He faith can touch and handle things unseen. Here would I grasp with firmer hand thy grace, and all my weariness upon thee lean. I ask no dream, no prophet ecstasies, no sudden rending of the veil of clay, no angel visitant, no opening skies, but take the dimness of my soul away. Mine is the sin, but thine the righteousness. Mine is the guilt, but thine the cleansing blood. Here is my robe, my refuge, and my peace. Thy blood, thy righteousness, O Lord, my God. You can be seated. How privileged we are. When I realized it was my turn to administer communion this week, and I looked at Shane's text, I thought, what a wonderful lead-in to communion. That contrast between the old covenant and the fear that went with it, and the new covenant that is in Christ. We come to the mediator of a new covenant this morning. I would also encourage you, we certainly won't take time now, but I would encourage you when you go home to look through 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There's another very interesting contrast between the old and the new and how the glory of the old faded. But in Christ, as we look at him, we can be transformed to be like him. Now, just a couple of words of instructions this morning. If you're visiting with us at Lockwood, we have what we call an open communion. If you know the Lord Jesus and you've received the new life that Shane has been talking about, you are more than welcome to join us. We invite you to join us, whether you're an actual covenant partner with us or not this morning. The gentleman will pass out the elements, and you just hold them till everyone's been served, and then I'll come back up and we'll pray together. And